episode will contain minor spoilers for the winds of winter. Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon episode 13, our Barristan outro. Featuring me, Chloe, one of your co-hosts of Girls Gone Canon. And also featuring me, another one of your co-hosts of Girls Gone Canon, Eliana. And today we are so excited to have on with us the wonderful and one of our great friends, Brendan B. Fish, also known as Jeff, author of the book The Cautioner's Tale, <laughs> named 2018 and 2019 Book of the Year. We've also yes. recently gotten word um, from a few press releases and publishers that he has won the Newberry Award for Children's Fiction and the Pulitzer Prize. He's also been nominated for the Hugo Awards. So give a hand to Jeff. Woo, crowd goes wild. Hey, buddies. How are we doing tonight? <laughs> God, that's hey, the Jeff. voice you used to great us earlier when you came on the call. <laughs> yeah, that's as if we haven't been talking for an hour as yeah. we're coming on to this, this, uh, this episode. So hi. I'm Hi. super freaking excited to be on with you guys. It's a uh, pleasure to to talk about Barristan, especially since one of the things that I do is I am one of the co-hosts of the Not A Cast podcast, if you guys are listening to that, and along with poor Quentin, otherwise known as Emmett. And we're not going to get into Barristan stuff until like freaking 2023 at this point, I think, if we're, if we're charting it out correctly. So super freaking excited to talk about Barristan. So Quick blurb about me. I'm Jeff, otherwise known as Brendan B. Fish. You might know me from Twitter, from Reddit. I've done a few other things elsewhere on the internet that you have maybe famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. And it's a. And the caution is how I am the author of the world famous 2018 2019, and I've gotten word that it'll be the 2020 book of the year uh, as well. Uh, that is the book called The Cautioner's Tale. So it's. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. It's, it's, it's cool. It's. Uh, yeah it's lit it's, it's lit hashtag lit as, as you 20 somethings and we'll say but i'm not 20 something that's for sure you're almost as old as barristan i am you basically call me sir grandfather for this episode <laughs> we are so excited to have you on sir grandfather um, <laughs> no we are uh jeff has written at extent about the situation in marine things that are happening different plots in uh the books like that so uh, we were really excited to get him on also because we're okay with him he's he's all right <laughs> i think it's kind of funny that jeff's all like yeah i'm so excited i like never get to talk about barrison and everyone jeff has a patreon uh at not a cast not a cast has a patreon in which they released an episode about barrison and he's yeah, also right. talked about uh the situation oh there's one of my long oz uh (laughs) jeff's also talked about the situation in marine uh with radio westeros um they did a really really fun skit for that yes yes it was a few years ago now so i think it's like 2016 there was they did a a really cool thing where they did like a radio broadcast of yoke boy and lady gwen and myself all playing the roles of different reporters reporting on the battle of marine which is something that'll be occurring in the winds of winter which i believe that you guys are going to be talking about here in the next few weeks yeah uh this week we are doing this barristan outro however it is not our last barristan episode you guys gasp next week is going to be our last episode for barristan however this episode is not going to be a normal episode uh it is going to be a taste at what our patreon episodes will be like we have special episodes 
We have many topics, not just the Winds of Winter episodes, but we are going to be doing Barristan 1 and a look at the summary of Barristan 2 in the coming weeks. Sweet. Can't wait. I'm super excited to hear your guys' takes on it because it's been – those two chapters are one of, among my favorites from the Winds of Winter sample chapters. I know people talk about the Forsaken or the Theon chapters, and I do love those chapters a lot, but those two Barristan – And the Elaine chapter. And, and, and the Elaine Sansa dancing chapter, that one too, people allegedly like. Allegedly. Oh my god, I know it's no Sansa too in Agat, but it's it's a good chapter. <laughs> it's a good chapter, okay, Jeff? <laughs> I was the writer of a very important essay that explored Jeff, Brendan B. Fish's uh, <laughs> opinions on Sansa. If you haven't seen it, please let me know. I will hit you a link personally to your email or your DM. Uh, if you want that, you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com or if you just want to make fun of Jeff. That's something we do too here. Yeah, you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter and you can send me a tweet that I won't read and then I'll immediately mute you uh, because that's what you deserve, if not a full block. It really depends on, on how I'm feeling that day. Did we invite Jeff on here just to neg him? Yeah, I feel it sort sort of kind of feels like you that. Soy, you soy boy. <laughs> I am the soy boy half of the Not a Cast podcast, so. Oh my god, the soyest, the soyest. <laughs> well, we are excited that Jeff is here for our thirteenth episode. Lucky thirteen, we are teenagers now. Woo! As Warren called out. Yes, Warren Dudson on Twitter did call that out. That was fun. We do have a couple other announcements in general housekeeping. I'll let Eliana get into it. Seeking on Patreon, we are going to start releasing and opening up our Patreon tiers for all of you to subscribe to and sign up for. Uh, we're very excited to start doing this soon, and uh, we're doing a, an early bird special. So anyone who signs up for our $10 tier or more by the 1st of September, so that's September 1, you're going to get a special edition I push for this Belwas Deserved Better <laughs> sticker. A Belwas Deserved Girls Gone Cannon sticker. It still needs to be designed. We're going to make this, and it's going to be amazing. And maybe you can put it on your car. Put it on your laptop. Put it on your face. Put it on your car. Put it on your cat. Put it on your Belwas. I don't know. Put it everywhere. All right? All right. Sign up. Make multiple accounts. Get a bazillion stickers. Put it on everything. It's going to be great. <laughs> I'm really selling us. Look at me. I should be in sales. <laughs> So we're really excited for that. We're excited for our Patreon tiers. We are going to release those tiers this weekend when the podcast is released. That will go up on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Next weekend, it will be open for sign up uh, starting in August on the 1st. So like she said, $10 or more tier by the 1st of September, you'll get that sticker. And it is a special edition, very special edition. I guess you need to give us your address. but Yeah, if you want a sticker worth it though we we won't show up we won't i don't i don't have that money or time yeah we really we don't another really cool thing that we are going to do next week is we did get some product from fire and suds which is in a song of ice and fire themed bath product company uh they have given us a dragon egg and a pot of wildfire bath bombs so we have those to give away. So next episode, we are going to start that giveaway. Look out for details then. Just to explain, do you want to explain quickly what yeah. a bath bomb is? For Because some people might yeah, not know yeah. what a bath bomb is. If you don't know what a bath bomb is, it is like bliss, fizzy, fun stuff. I don't know. It's like, basically, it's like a bunch of stuff put together. that makes your bath all sparkly and pretty and it fizzes up in the water. And I don't know. It's fun. 
Hold on, you deserve it. You deserve to birth a dragon egg. And of course, after next week's episode, we are going to be starting a new point of view. It will be a bit short-lived as well, so watch out for that information in our Barristan Winds of Winter episode. We've been saving up some really great comments and tweets from all of you that we wanted to address in our Barristan outro slash overview because we thought it would be better for the overarching discussion. So to start it all off... Going back again to our good friend Shakespeare of Thrones, who just like has a lot of great takes. It's not, it's not our fault. She just has great takes. All right. She starts off and says, anyway, I have known a few berries in my more military <laughs> line of work. People are always like, you really have to remember that Barry is from another era. He's old school. He knows his stuff and he gets the job done. And yeah, that's all true, but there's also this understanding that Barry is a dying breed and won't be around much longer. It's sad, but also indicative of a dying era in general, where the system benefited this one type of guy who didn't have to critically think about things so much, and now he does, and it's hard, and he wishes things were like how they were, or how he imagined they were. This is such an important POV for old-school Westeros that still doesn't understand. I love Grandpa. I just wish we could sit down and have a talk. From Shakespeare of Thrones. I love Shakespeare of Thrones. Shakespeare of Thrones just did a really good GIF thread the other day on uh, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones and GIFs. And it was just good. So please go give Shakespeare of Thrones a follow. She deserves it. She's very smart and wonderful. And lovely. She's very smart. Uh, this is really exactly how I feel. I feel like in the last few weeks, a couple people have maybe not really understood how I feel about Barry. I, I do like Barristan. It's just, mm-hmm. I love him. He's a great guy. It's not that I don't love him. He's sweet. He has a good heart. He means well, but he's so old-fashioned. He's stuck in this way that doesn't work anymore. Just like the rest of Westeros, I talk a lot about how the the second generation is who this story is really about now. It's not about mm-hmm. Cersei. It's not about Littlefinger. Those people are going to die. They are not the people that are going to lead Westeros after this war. They aren't the leaders. So Barristan is, like Shakespeare said, part of that old generation, and we are waiting for it to die. And it's really sad, but it's not about him in the end. It's about what came from it. Yeah, and same. I also really love Barristan, and I love his good intentions. And I've talked about I'm going to come back to this later, but I just love the trope that Barristan inhabits. He's like, not as good Uncle Iroh, but whatever. Um, I think that Barristan's just a super bold warrior, as his name says. I just don't think he's that bold necessarily of a person. And this is something that George R. R. Martin has really just been trying to impress upon his readers since A Game of Thrones with Robert's story, which is why it's so great. Like, I'd never piece this together until we were doing this POV reading in this order, right? So that bravery and courage that Barristan shows on the battlefield isn't necessarily the same as having strong moral fortitude. <laughs> and now I think that Barristan has a lot more moral fortitude than Robert, for sure, because Barristan in that room was all like, let's not send assassins after the 13-year-old girl. That sounds like a really bad idea. But... I just sort of feel a lot of frustration that Barristan hasn't had to be bold in making actual real-life adult choices until now, at 63. (laughs) And, like, as you said in a previous episode, Chloe, 
I mean, how could he? When would that have happened? Like, it's in some ways, it's kind of his fault, not, but circumstances have also fallen that, like, when would that have happened? So I just think it's really interesting that we're reading Barristan's story alongside so many of these younger characters because, as you were saying, A Song of Ice and Fire is the story of this next generation of these younger people. And so we're ending up with this sort of coming-of-age story, like this Bildungsroman in miniature for a character who's already lived most of his life, who's experienced most of it, as opposed to a young person who's just stepping into their shoes for the first time. So I think that's very interesting, and maybe I'm just kind of bitter and jealous because I've kind of had to make some real-life choices and live my life and strive to be a functioning adult before Barristan has. Uh, I mean, I've never fought like on a battlefield, but... No, you're, you're, you're right. There's a great point to be made that you talk about Barristan counseling Robert back in A Game of Thrones Edward Six, don't send hard knives after Daenerys because that is dishonorable. At the same juncture, he doesn't take the next step and say, if you do this, I'm done as your Kingsguard. That's what Ned does. But Barristan, yeah. when the decision is finally made, he steps back and says, okay, that's just, that's just the way that, that shit is, is that we... I have to serve and obey. He's essentially, he's a little bit more advanced in terms of his thinking and understanding than Ariwahota is, but he's basically a serve, protect, obey type figure more than anything else. And it haunts mm-hmm. him. It significantly and seriously haunts him throughout his arcs. We find in the Dance of Dragons that he saw all these terrible and horrible things, but he felt that the only thing he could do was to serve and obey the king. And that worked out well when he was serving someone like Jaehaerys II. It didn't work out so well when he's serving someone like Ares II. It didn't also work out well when he's serving someone like Robert as well. These are people who are bad kings, but Barristan has been brought up in this chivalric, noble type of thinking and line of morality and ethics that he thinks that that's the noblest good that he can do as a, as a warrior. And, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to the question that was asked, there's something really interesting at work going on in, in A Song of Ice and Fire where you have the death of an era and it's not just that it's the second generation. I think that's a fantastic point. It's also the death of chivalry altogether. And you can see this in places like mm-hmm. the battlefield. You know, one of the things that I've written about is that I think in The Winds of Winter that you're going to see some sort of confrontation between Aegon Targaryen and the Golden Company versus the Knights of Summer and this, this chiv- chivalric reachmen who are coming for him, as we find out in one of Arianne's Winds of Winter chapters. And... One of the things that John Connington has come to the realization is, and John Connington is an, another dude who's in the same era as Barristan, is that I can't fight the way, the chivalric way. I have to fight, I have to like break the rules and be this immoral, or rather amoral individual who can has to murder children if needs to be. I can burn, I have to burn down a whole town in order to save Westeros. That's kind of the, the mentality that John Connington has. Barristan's still stuck in this, if... You know, it can solve things with, like, the honorable sword, and it just doesn't necessarily going to work out, as what he finds out in Marine is that him drawing his sword against Kraz and imprisoning his Darzo Loric, that doesn't solve anything. It creates a whole lot of problems for Barrison and for Marine at large. Yeah, and, and for Daenerys when she comes back. Yes. Oh my god, Danny's <laughs> gonna be like, what have you done to my house <laughs> right my bed with the dying kid with oh his God. death juices all over it i leave for a night and you throw a party and you break my expensive vase that's what it's gonna be like all of her uh, expensive va- vases <laughs> vase. 
Yeah, except they're people's lives. <laughs> so. Uh, that hurts people, Barristan. Uh, a, I'm very excited for whenever we get to John Connington. Let's have Jeff back on. Um, and next, uh, I think that this discussion tra- segues perfectly into this tweet from another another friend slash another favorite <laughs> Aswolf person. Yeah. Jeff, you want to read his tweet? This sure. is uh, a tweet from Aziz from History of Westeros. Hi, Aziz, first. And then secondly, your tweet says, Regarding Barristan, I have a point I'd like to get your thoughts on if it's not too late. He, that is Barristan, strikes me as the Westeros equivalent of a child star slash actor. A life defined by inborn talent, famous at a young age, lives in a bubble, messed up ideas about sex and love, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, there's there's a great point that I think that many people have made. I think you guys have made it, but I know that Emmett's made it on on the Not a Cast podcast, and that all of these characters that are coming from Robert's Rebellion have are all stilted in that age where they had some mm-hmm. sort of experience and trauma happened to them. For Ned Stark, it's when he encountered his sister dying at the Tower of Joy. For someone like Barristan. So for Barrison, he always goes back to when I was a boy, I was the bold boy because I did the tourney at Blackhaven. And then I led the king out at Duskendale. And these things all are kind of grounding Barristan and not allowing him to progress forward. So he still thinks he knows that he's old, but he still thinks that he still thinks of himself in the same ways that he thought of himself as a young man. And that does have consequences for for Barristan and again for Marine, too. Yeah, major consequences for Barristan and those around him. I think the pressure of living up to this legendary name that he crafted for himself has mm-hmm. kind of inflated his high morality stance in a way. It reminds me of people like clinging to their beliefs for voting, and but they vote for corruption in office and idly sit by and don't say anything when bad things are really happening. They just put their heads down and say, well, that's too bad. I think, uh, I think Barristan has a lot of internal conflict about that and about what's right in the eyes of others and what's right to him in actually executing those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's some points I'm going to come, we're going to come back to later, but I also just really like this idea that Aziz brings up about that defined by inborn talent and also living in a bubble and how Barristan being that legend in the same way that a child star slash actor is, you're living in stories, and Barristan's just been living in songs and stories. So, uh, we have another tweet. Yeah, we uh, have Eric Mord the Turnkey on Twitter at Lord Snow three one seven tweeted at us. He uh, quote retweeted some really awesome art by Mike Caprati of Barristan that we posted with a quote. I will not suffer the murder of children, accept that, or I'll have no part in this. And I love what Eric quote tweeted. He quote tweeted, Oh, Barristan, you sweet summer child, you brought the monster to the children and went outside to play at war. <laughs> which, as you know, coming up in the winds of winter, which we will talk about in a bit, uh, Barristan is outside leading in the Battle of Fire mm-hmm. while the Shavepates have taken over the city internally and they're, you know, holding and having control over Marine internally and not at the battle. So, I mean, he left all the children there. So I want to come back right now to just something that Jeff has just said, especially in the context of this quote. Jeff said that when Robert 
was all like, I'm sending hired knives after Danny. And Barrison said, don't do that. But he didn't do anything. Barrison here saying, accept that or I'll have no part in this. That shows some growth in him, right? Or do you think that this was an empty threat? I think it's an interesting question, but it's kind of an, it's not an empty threat. It's more of Barristan, what are you doing to prevent the murder of children <laughs> in Marine? True. What is the actual thing that, what is the policy that you're mm. implementing to save these kids? Because one of the things that's brought up in the, um, in, in Barristan's final chapter in the Dance with Dragons is that he goes back up to the Queen's Chambers and he sees all these kids and they're sitting around in a circle and they're spinning a knife at each other. And it's like very, very clear foreshadowing of what's going to happen to these poor kids in they're going to play spin the bottle. Yes, except for the playing spin the knife. And then they're chopping off like bits of their hair. It's it's really kind of really, it, it struck me a few years ago when I was rereading. It, I was like, oh my God, that's very, very clear about what's going to happen to them. Now, very, very clear. Very, very clear. God damn it. <laughs> and, um, this is why I get fired weekly. But so so what what is Barrison doing to save the kids? I think he's accepting that, accepting that Skahaz will not turn against him or will not go back on his word. And Skahaz doesn't strike me as the type of person that you necessarily want to just trust and not verify. I think mm. you want to leave people to defend the kids. And there's no indication mm-hmm. from both Dance and the Winds of Winter that Barrison has left, say, someone Sully to guard the to guard the kids, or even left, you know, some of his freedmen uh, company or sell swords or anyone. So basically, they're in the tender mercies and cares of Skahaz Mokandak, and that man does not have too much in the way of tenderness or care for these children. Well, and to that, I mean, Barrison also doesn't really have the power to take hostages or anything either from those people. You know, I mean, what's he going to do? Say to Skahaz, okay, what do you hold dear that I could take as insurance that you're not going to kill these children? He doesn't have that power really even to do something like that. And he doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't really have the gumption as Eliana was saying that, you know, he's not really bold enough to do that. He wouldn't do that or make a move like that. He thinks there's too much at stake and... He wouldn't want to play dirty like that where, you know, Skahaz is all the little finger saying, hey, that's how the game is played. You got to play dirty or get played. You know, there's, there's a great point that you bring up there. Why Barrison can't do that is because he's already given up the game in that he has told Skahaz that I will not suffer the murder of children except that I'll have no part in this. Skahaz knows even if Barrison took a member of House Kandak, he can act at will because he's not going to lift a finger to kill a child in the event Mm -hmm. that Skahaz goes back on his word and that's just really really I mean it's great I think it's great I mean I applaud you know allow me my one little clap for Barristan here that's it that's all you get buddy because I appreciate you saying I will not suffer the murder of children but you're not fucking doing anything to prevent the murder of children in Marine yeah he's and it almost shows a bit of self-importance right because he thinks that just his involvement would swing the tide of whether someone makes a decision to murder children or not, as opposed... He, he's taking a passive, throwing my hands up in the air, washing my hands of the situation, as opposed to, as you were saying, that active. Whereas I think, even if it were difficult, based on things that Ned has said in the dungeon, and just also how Ned is, Ned would have Ned would have fought even if he knew he had no chance. No chance or no choice. When can a man be brave? (laughs) All right. And that brings us to 
we have a lot of we've, we've been saving a lot of tweets everyone <laughs> we've just Another gotten tweet. such good stuff this whole time this has been yeah. i feel like the the barrison uh pov has gone by really quickly i feel like this has been so fast compared to ned uh so it's hard because i got really attached the last week i want to say so mm-hmm. now it's all these tweets i'm like we're saying goodbye soon next week's it yeah so we saved the best for second to the last mm-hmm. and and just brought a lot of stuff so this one is from all of these friends we have so many friends mighty isabel who has caught up with the podcast and says catching up what does it say to a filthy doyless like <laughs> me that the POV, oh my god, Isabel, I love you, uh, that untangled the Miranese knot is the one that so, so, so does not understand what a young girl, the queen, wants. And my first response is a link to, we'll put a link in the podcast. We're not putting to, a link to, <laughs> to the music video for Christina Aguilar's What a Girl Wants. It's gonna be stop. I don't need it in my head. I don't need this, this this hell, this nightmare. Uh, We are gonna talk a little bit about Barristan and how he kind of deals with the females in his life in a (laughs) bit later. So we'll save that for them. But I do love also like a filthy doyleist like me. Isabel's great. I know. There's so much insinuation there, and like I'm not gonna. I'm living for it. I I want to throw it out there, and everyone else can just you can all just draw your own conclusions. But like I'm with, I see you, Isabel. Yeah. We did get an email from Josh who emailed us. Uh, I believe we talked about. We had one of his points in our Ned outro episode, actually. Uh, but Josh sent us another email. And he said, I just wanted to say I am with Eliana. There is more to strong Belwas than meets the eye. I just can't tell if the cupbearer, Kazimapal, will get a second chance to poison strong Belwas before Danny can make him the ruler of Marine. Kind regards, Josh. Why would you say that to me? I mean, A, hashtag the truth that there's more to strong Belwas than meets the eye, but Belwas deserves better than what you are offering to me and to him. Like what? The whole kingdoms? All of them? All, all, yes. All everything. Of them? Everything. The Song Lanidums? of Ice and Fire. All, all of it. Yes. All the of it. A Song of Ice and Fire? He deserves the A Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> yeah. He deserves He deserves this uh, seven book book series. This eight book. This, this 12 book book series? This, this three book book series. The three books. The trilogy that took over the nation. <laughs> well, that was a good romp. We have to get our bell losses in while we can. Uh, I guess that brings us to let's talk about what Barristan's life means to the reader and to the story and dig into kind of what we learned. So to start off, a big piece of characterization for Barristan that sets him apart from many of the other characters is that he is a POV that is much older than many of them. And I just want to sort of talk a little bit about... Oh, he's going to die? Well, yeah, we're all going to die. Um, Barristan and his age. And this came up a little in our parenting episode, our parenting panel with um, LML. But you're also going to hear people often talk about how folks who lived in the medieval ages had to 
mature much faster than people nowadays because of the short life expectancy, which I don't really think is true because cognitive development, just because we didn't have an understanding of it, didn't actually change. But anyways, well, um, it's also because the lifespan in the medieval times it gets skewed because of the number of infant yes. deaths that occur. Yes, but yes, people actually, if they survive past infancy, the, the average lifespan was about 60 to 65 years yes we're gonna go with yes thank you jeff um jeff majored in history so what he said is actually very legit so trust jeff he majored in history but yeah like as you were saying the the high infant mortality rate skews it because people often cite the statistic which is true that the average age of death is 30 but if you count all the babies who died at like one and two of course that's gonna drop the number because that's how averages work but the idea that the average age is 30 would of course make Pearson extremely remarkable. And of course, while 63 it is notable, the assertion that folks died in their 30s isn't entirely accurate, as Jeff was saying. Research from archaeologists at the Australian National University, they were looking at some of these Anglo-Saxon and medieval graveyards, and while, of course, these are from very specific time periods, like the Anglo-Saxon graveyards are from very very early medieval periods as opposed to like the times that uh a song of ice and fire claims to be inspired by a sizable number of adults did die between the ages of 25 and 45 but like as jeff was saying if for example men who reached ages i think it was 20 or 25 could reasonably expect to live up to age 50 and the things that would cut life short were disease or violence and actually a good number of people would live to like like about half of them would live up to 55 or older we're gonna link these studies nice. and you know taking that into context with i like this i really like this quote by brown ben plum i also just really like brown ben plum because i think he's another interesting side like flip side of the coin to barristan i think i just like these i just Old men who are good at fighting. It's an interesting trope that I am fond of. You guys should do a brown band episode for your Patreon. We should do a Taken episode. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Brown Ben Plum says, There are old cell swords and bold cell swords, but no old bold cell swords. And while Barristan isn't a cell sword, he is... It cavorting with a bunch of sellsword companies right now and he's turned cloak enough that like i mean what's the difference just because he's not getting paid like he's getting paid with i don't know compliments and nice armor <laughs> oh yeah wait that comes up a lot that came up in that last dance chapter it comes up in that first winds chapter yeah he's wearing that armor he is just like scaly and he's really into white and gold really into his fashion yeah, yeah. stunting Something fronten. They use the word fronten a lot, also in that wins chapter. Fronted, <laughs> apostrophe. Um, fronten Martel. So, oh my god. <laughs> Maybe there's also. Do you course, understand like, my life now, Jack? Class <laughs> distinction, the class discussion that could be occurring here. You know, those cell swords had to actively chase conflict, whereas the King's Guard doesn't really need to. They can sit cushy next to the king so long as nothing bad happens uh, and there are these difficult situations. But in general, being an old knight is a testament to Barrison's ability and of course plays into that formidable old man trope. So, I don't know. In short, 
Barristan, being 63 while living a life of fighting, is impressive, and if it weren't for events like Robert's Rebellion, Barristan being of that age wouldn't necessarily be out of the ordinary for nobility or necessarily strange for people living in a society like Westeros. I mean, I think it's it's a great point that you make that Barristan living to the age of 63, given the lifestyle that he's chosen... A warrior, a squire, a knight, a warrior, a Kingsguard, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, mm-hmm. surviving how many wars? You know, from Robert's Rebellion, Duskendale. Uh, was he a part of the uh, Kingswood Brotherhood, the suppression of that? Yeah. By, with Arthur yep. Dane? Mm-hmm. I know Jamie Lannister yep. wasn't. I just don't remember. He killed uh, Simon Toyne. There you go. Yep. You're absolutely correct. And so, and then after that, he, we don't, we don't get this from the books itself. We actually get this from a one of the history documentaries that they had history documentaries one of the history and lore videos from game of thrones that barristan was a part of the taking of old wick during the Greyjoy rebellion serving alongside of stannis baratheon so i have to get my stannis mentioned into this episode at least one time oh my god (laughs) we've done so good we've done so well not not mentioning stannis every episode i just i just had to do it one time and that's that one goes out to emmett right there so um my god (laughs) So, so yeah, and, and then he survives again. How many battles when he's on Daenerys' side? He survives the march up from Yunkai. He survives taking the taking Marine altogether, uh, which is a crazy feat if you think about all the shit literally and figuratively they went through to get into the city of Marine. And then he survived fighting against Kraz, probably the best pit fighter. And obviously, and George does do a great job of making this very intentional that it wasn't necessarily a fair fight because Kraz doesn't have any armor on. And, you know, Kraz calls him a coward at one point. And Barrison, of course, says, this coward's about to kill you, which is a great line. I think it's fantastic. And then he's out to march again on the Battle of Fire. But he's 63 years old, having survived countless wars, countless single combats, countless rescues, countless... Not countless. I mean, these are all counted, but you get my point that there's there's a lot of things, factors going into it. So it's a testimony to Barrison and his skill at arms that he survived for as long as he has. Yep. Any day now. Any day now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Though, I have a random fun fact of when I was studying our niece, which is that Filipino martial art, I didn't stay very long. But my teacher was talking about how there are old men who have studied it for a long time, and what that their age has given them is not just, of course, a lot of knowledge and practice making those moves. They've learned shortcuts that have made them very efficient <laughs> in fighting. And I'm sure Barristan, of course, has a lot of that knowledge, too. He was fighting with a staff, our niece, and the Screema sometimes, as opposed to using two sticks, you use a staff. So, Yeah, I mean, the same kind of example goes for golf, too. I remember my... Um... <laughs> <laughs> my uh i know you guys laugh as much as you fucking want it's basically for for barrison he's in his 60s in the same way my uncle is in his early 70s now but he's a very good golfer but he's very good because he knows the techniques extremely well and he's practiced his entire life but he can't drive the ball nearly as far as he can now but he has the ability to have a fantastic mm-hmm. short game because he's been doing that his entire life for you know, 60 plus years Barrison's the same way in that he's not as fast as these other men of the King's Guard. He's definitely not as good as Jamie Lannister is right now, for instance, or Jamie Lannister pre removal of his of his sword hand. Um, I would say he probably might not even like square off against someone like Sir Balan Swan, who seems to be a fantastic knight in his own right. 
but he has the technique that might net him some amount of survivability on on a battlefield or or in single combat. He's got that old band strength. Mm-hmm. And and experience. He, we talked about that in previous episodes where Barrison talks about how the pit fighters don't have real world fighting experience, whereas he does. Yes. Absolutely. And with that, the pit fighting in Marine brings us right to politics in Marine. Uh, I know Jeff has a lot that he wants to say about the politics in Marine, and I do too. So let's get on into it. Well, I think the first thing, like when you talk about the politics of Marine, so many readers unfortunately dismiss Marine because they're like, oh, it's fucking Marine. You know, I hate this city. You know, I can't wait for Danny to get like clear out of the city and get back to Westeros where it's really important and everything like that. But but no, you're you're wrong and bad and ugly. Like the Marine is important. Marine is important because it's it's basically George saying, What does the Game of Thrones look like in a place that isn't King's Landing, Winterfell, River Run, Old Town, or even like Castle Black and places like that? He's asking he's he's essentially expanding the lens of where he wants to he's essentially expanding the lens of politics and examining what the Game of Thrones looks like in a place like Marine. And it's really fascinating, I think. And I think it's extremely undervalued as a set piece and as a – I think it's really eventful and plotful and very – I really enjoy it, especially these Barrison chapters are fantastic in kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of Marine. You know, it's funny. Like on the meta side, I really feel that you can almost read George's anger and frustration at his inability to write A Dance of Dragons fairly quickly in Danny's Marine chapters – where she's angry and bitter and frustrated and constantly feeling that she's being set back from the advances and the successes she made earlier. But then when you get to Barrison, the plot really kind of picks up in its pace, really kind of mm. you start hitting point after point after point after point, and the beats start just kind of increasing in terms of its tempo. So talking a little bit about the politics of Marine, when we talk about Marine, we have to look at it as a city that is extraordinarily factional. And what I mean by that is that there are disparate, there are three major groups in Marine, and there's probably a fourth one too, within the walls of Marine that have different aims, different motivations, and they have different kind of subsets of people in the group. So briefly, you have the three, so briefly, the three factions are one, Danny and her children, two, Skahasmo Kandak and his Shavepates, and three, the Great Masters, primarily seen in the Sons of the Harpy, as well as some of the characters that we, the Danny and Barrison encounter and deal with in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, to get a little bit more in depth, Daenerys Targaryen, again, as you guys talked about, took Marine at the end of A Storm of Swords and has set herself up there in order to learn how to rule Marine. But she didn't come alone or simply with her army. She brought a whole population into the city. Mostly former slaves, but also you have Unsullied, you have Sellswords and the Stormcrows and the Second Sons, although, was, uh, although the Second Sons then defect to Yunkai at the uh, midway through A Dance of Dragons. And Danny's their motivations and goals are simply are pretty simple. They don't want to return to slavery, they do not want to return to slavery, and they want to make Marines slave free. Danny, though, has a separate goal in mind. As I talked about, as I alluded to earlier, Danny's goal is to learn how to rule, so Marine is kind of her testing to in order to figure out what makes for a good rule and how she can learn if she can learn how to rule the city of marine she'll have a better chance of being a good ruler in westeros but ultimately danny's goal is to come back to is to but ultimately danny's goal is to return to westeros and make war in westeros 
Yeah, Marine is very much the stepping stone for Daenerys. It's as much as the Vale and King's Landing was for Sansa to learn how to play and learn how to be a part of a game, and still is. It's like how the Wall is Jon's way to learn how to rule. That is very much so Daenerys's stepping stone to get to Westeros. Marine, while George doesn't flesh it out as well as I think he could have, and the same criticism can be levied against the Dothraki. I think that maybe we should be interrogating the perception that it is a stepping stone for Daenerys, that it's just a petri dish where she experiments and learns how to rule, because we see that she very much cares about the outcomes of Meereen, and I think that while, of course, yes, it's a work of fiction and a story, we should be thinking of Meereen still as a population of people. These are people. These are Danny's people. And when she thinks of it at the end of A Storm of Swords, she goes, the sounds of my city. And what she stays for is she realizes that the peace that she so longed for and the freedom that she longed to bring to Slaver's Bay did not take hold in either Yunkai or Astapor. And she doesn't want to necessarily make the same mistake in Meereen. And I think this is something that neither Jorah nor Bearson necessarily relate to. I think that they are like, why is Daenerys wasting her time here? And sure, she thinks, like, how can I rule the Seven Kingdoms if I cannot rule a single city? But I do want to question the idea that it's just a stepping stone when there, I think that that mindset is, I think that mindset can be a little problematic. Sure. And you're right, about that and that Daenerys faces that choice at the end of A Storm of Swords but she also faces it in A Dance with Dragons where mm-hmm. she finds out that Yunkai is besieging Astapor and is in the is on the brink of taking the city from the people that she didn't necessarily install but are there acting on behalf of her which you know not they're ostensibly acting on behalf of her they're not actually acting on behalf of her and she's presented with basically three options or she's presented with two options to begin with first stay within Marine and kind of let Astapor deal with its own problems. Or secondly, march against Astapor, march against Yunkai and liberate Astapor. But there's a third option. And who presents that option but none but none other than Sir Barristan Selmy, who urges Daenerys, who says there's a third way, Westeros and war in Westeros. And Danny, to her credit and benefit, she rejects Barristan's option to abandon Marine to its fate, take her army and her people, and go back to Westeros. She has a real stake in Marine and in ensuring its peaceful, or rather it's peaceful, and to ensure its survival going forward. And that's where I think a lot of, I'll even give, just for Jeff, since he's here, there's a lot of Stannis parallels with the, the future, the queen who cared, and Daenerys was the queen who cared. She wasn't She thinks of them as her people and as her children, and she thinks of them lovingly, and she doesn't want to just leave. Uh, She doesn't want to go straight to Westeros. She wants to do it right, and she wants them to be in the right hands and them to be liberated from basically everything they're experiencing and basically what we are looking at, you know, people like the Green Grace, that they want to keep that old lifestyle and keep that going. So Daenerys has a lot to basically learn from the Dothraki right now, and come back and save her people and make sure they're okay before she can do anything. So it's going to be really interesting to see who she actually instills to kind of keep things level. And hopefully it's strong Bellwes, but. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But the same juncture, 
The question I have, and maybe this is a question that Eliana can answer, does Daenerys consider the Marinese her people? And that when I speak about the Marinese, I guess I'm speaking more about the Great Masters. Does she think of them as her people? Or is she more thinking of the lower classes and former slaves of Marine that have kind of rallied around her and her cause in Marine? I would say it's definitely more of the latter because you can see how adversarial she feels and how how alien she feels amongst the traditions and customs of the great masters and how she feels that she's constantly performing for them. And I think she relates more to those who have been enslaved than necessarily the masters. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she says something in Dan, in her first chapter in the dance of dragons where she says, I hate the city, but I must don my floppy ears. Or, and I think she says that later on where she feels that compelled to, follow the customs of Marine, while at the same time despising the city and despising, I guess she's despising the city, but despising more of the one class of people that was, is diametrically opposed to her in Marine, and those being the uh, the Harpy, which we'll be talking about, or those being the Great Masters and or the Harpy, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, but to kind of take it a little bit more from... Uh, from Marine itself and talk a little bit more about her children. She does have a significant military presence in Marine. Her army is composed of Unsullied. There was about 11,000 that she brought from Astapor in the Storm Swords. Counting some of the casualties she took in taking the city of Marine and some of the casualties she suffered in the Sons of the Harpy insurgency, I would estimate she's probably got about 10,000 Unsullied left there. She's also got three freedmen companies. They are known as the Free Brothers, the Mother's Men, and the Stalwart Shields. Stalwart Shields being my favorite of the companies because they are named for that one dude, Stalwart Shield, who was the one who was lying with the um, oh yeah, the one who was murdered by uh, yeah, yeah he was yeah he was yeah he was murdered by the Sons of the Harpy and um, he used to lie with the um, the sex workers in in Marine because he just wanted their comfort and I think it's really sad and he got murdered. As a result of that, yeah. But I do, I do love the fact that they, they, he was such an inspirational example that they named one of their companies the Stalwart Shields. I think that's fucking great. They're estimated to be about two thousand in number, according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire. And I believe that's also mentioned in one of Danny's Dance of Dragons chapters. And then she has one Selsword company, the only one that's left to her because the Second Sons abandoned her midway through a Dance of Dragons, and that is the Storm Crows, led by the dashing. Good dicked Dario. He's not dicked. <laughs> yeah, it's not dicked. Yeah. He does the dicking. <laughs> the dicking is all done by Dario. That's why he's good yeah. dick. Ah, right. There you, really, go. you need to get your Dario dick conjugations better. <sighs> get right. Get right with Jesus. I'll work with that. Work on that. <laughs> there are a handful of quotes from Barrison's POV that I really liked as we read through these uh, chapters this go round. And I'm going to read them off. It's him regarding Dario. He has like this constant, almost distaste and hateful respect for Dario. He like, he hate loves him. You know, it's like his best frenemy. And he's always constantly comparing himself to Dario in a way. Uh, like in the Queen's Guard, for example, would Dario have moved more quickly if he had been beside the Queen that day? Selmy thought he knew the answer to that, though it was not one he liked. <laughs> but then you see in the Kingbreaker him thinking of Dario with, like I said, a hateful respect. Uh, Dario is vain and rash, but he is dear to her grace. He must be rescued before his storm crows decide to take matters into their own hands. 
It can be done. I once brought the queen's father safely out of Duskendale where he was being held captive by a rebel lord, but... And he trails off because he's old. Because um, <laughs> he's old. As old as Jeff. That's hateful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope you live at least that long, Jeff. I, I, I'm I working on it. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. Dario's a terrific character. Again, one of those characters that's completely undervalued by the fandom. I won't go into all the reasons why Dario is terrific and fantastic, but I do love the fact that he symbolizes so much mm-hmm. of Danny's warlike, draconic nature. And I do also love the fact that he essentially proposes the Red Wedding in Marine, which I think is really interesting that one of his courses of action is, ah, well, you getting married to his stars or will be a great pretense to gather all the great masters together, and then we will close the gates, and I will send my men, and we will slaughter everyone. You're like, holy shit, dude. You're basically Walter Frey in Marine. So, um, But sexier. Sexy Walter Frey. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell I am yeah. never going to fornicate again. <laughs> no, but he's no, but he's great. But he's also he's a captive though of the Yunkai as part of the deal that Daenerys made with Yunkai in order to forestall war, at least temporarily. And he's still being held captive. And even in the Winds sample chapters, we don't get any indication that he's been killed. And you guys, I believe, had talked about in the last chapter from Barristan that the deal that he strikes with Archibald Ironwood and Garrus Drinkwater was that they would go in and convince the and convince the windblown to go and liberate the prisoners to include Dario. And one of the things that Barristan says in uh, I don't know if I want to say it because that's the winds of winter stuff and I don't want to get too much into it. He says it, it in so. dance, um, right? It's fine. Yeah. yeah, you can still mention it. We're we aren't worried. Yeah. Okay. Do whatever you want. So one of the things. So another really kind of interesting and funny thing is that when Barrison is giving his badass speech about what's going to happen in the Battle of Fire, that he instructs his men that if they come across Dario somehow alive in the camp of the Yunkai, he thinks momentarily it might be better if he's dead. But given the fact that he's a great warrior, give him a sword and follow his lead and his example because he would know what to do, which I think is a testament of what you guys have talked about of kind of that grudging respect that Barrison has for Dario. Yeah, and Eliana and I have actually discussed how it's probably a lot to do with uh, gender and the warrior syndrome of, you know, like, if he's a great warrior, I will give him respect. Uh, I mean, you even see in, I want to say if it's, it might be the second chapter, he sees a woman that's fighting naked in chainmail, and her boobies are, like, swinging everywhere in her, in the bed. I think, I want to say it might be Barristan, too, in The Winds of Winter, but, like, he's like, what the hell is going on? But, you know, Dario is, like, such a piece of crap prick to him and he's just like this cocky little young (laughs) fuck and he's all dario's all good dick dario's all just like cocky and awful and barrison's like i guess i respect you your sword (laughs) not that sword the other one but uh in in the winds of winter that Mm -hmm. passage you reference he straight up says and if he should die heroically in battle so much the better like well hopefully dario will die so i don't (laughs) deal with him anymore damn so two things with that like yes absolutely regarding that whole like gender and warrior syndrome and i think that shiloh carroll from who wrote the book medievalism in a song of ice ice and fire and game of thrones touches on that a little where she talks about how the whole idea of masculinity is wrapped up in this idea of physical power. And that wasn't necessarily true in every 
society and maybe not necessarily even true in the actual medieval era but in the world of westeros and song of ice and fire that is how respect is gained for some reason through martial prowess and physical power but also uh, a proposal hmm. is and this is going to be a little weird is barristan's feelings towards dario supposed to be like you know how sometimes there's those really kind of like fucked up things where fathers are like, oh, don't touch my daughter, or I know what's best for my little girl, and it's not this guy, or whatever. Is that what Barristan's character is supposed to be like in regards to being like, hmm, Dario's like an okay guy, I guess, but also I hate how he's messing up my little girl or whatever. It's weird to me the relationship that Barrison has towards Daenerys. And I think you hit on something. You look at it more of as a as a father figure protecting his daughter from sexual impropriety, which is something that did occur and still does to this to this very day. My question though is kind of my question though is what is Barristan's actual feelings towards Daenerys? Are they simply a chastely love that Barristan bears for Daenerys as the figure, as a as a figure that he's worth that as as a queen that is worth serving, or is it a little bit more than that? And I had so I reread all of Barristan's chapters in preparation to come on to your guys' excellent podcast. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the line where Barrison is talking about how Daenerys reminds him of Ashara Dane. And we know that Barristan was very much infatuated with Ashara Dane. Is Barristan potentially viewing Daenerys in a lens that is a bit more than simply chastely chivalric courtly virtue and love? Is there a bit of romantic feeling that Barristan has for Danny? I don't it's not explicitly said in in the books as far as I know but I think that's a possibility for sure. It's kind of like there was that line about I mean I think at the at the least he's definitely projecting very hard mm-hmm. uh onto the situation definitely projecting especially with the the lines about Quentin and how Dorne sent her mud and uh how young girls would always choose fire over mud you know they'd always not choose the nice guy <laughs> and there was a lot of that going on with it uh i could see maybe even a little but he does call uh her like his, his little child queen, child queen you know Ugh. his child queen so yeah i'm not sure but at the same time i mean that's not out of the question because ashara was a couple years older than daenerys but like was only a couple years older and he kind of felt the same way about her and had similar thoughts apparently. So it it is interesting. I think it's just a lot of heavy projection. Yeah, there's a lot of things being foisted onto Daenerys from Barristan. Like maybe daughter as Jeff proposed, maybe lover, maybe child, but also not child, maybe maybe child queen, uh, but also just a stand-in replacement for this idea of honor which is a huge thing to just put onto someone like oh you are my path to honor like how Jorah <laughs> saw Danny initially but not anymore but like initially as you are my ticket home she represents so yes. many things she represents yeah she represents home she represents this old 
lineage that he used to serve and this uh, prospect for honor on top of maybe daughter, maybe lover, all these things. And so to, to kind of bring it back, I, I can see the possibility that Barrison is looking at Dario as both this guy's not great, but, you know, at least he can wield a sword. But at the same time, I can also see him as a, and then has it an unconscious, if he has an unconscious or unrequited love for Daenerys as a potential romantic rival. And I, I think that's that's something that we can, you guys can talk about more in your, your Barrison uh, episode coming up for the Winds of Winter. Yeah, we can talk about it when uh, the Winds of Winter comes out. Yeah, right when that comes out. <laughs> Next week, I think, is what I heard. Another four years! <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, so, to kind of briefly go through the rest of some of the folks in Danny's party, you have the civilians there. If you go past the army, you have the freedmen from Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine to possess a wide skill set. You have folks like weavers. You've got pe- people who are teachers and different types of civilians that are working with uh, that that are part of, that are in marine now and they come from all over slavers bay and then finally you have the dragons and the dragons i put as a question mark whether they're actually on barristan's side because there's a great line that comes in barristan's final chapter in the dance with dragons where skahazmo kendak asks so i ask you if the peace should fail and this battle should be joined will the dragons come will they join the fight they will come, Sir Barristan might have said. The noise will bring them, the shouts and screams, the scent of blood. That will draw them to the battlefield just as the roar from Daznak's pit drew Drogon to the Scarlet Sands. But when they come, will they know one side from the other? Somehow he did not think so. So, um, big question mark whether the dragons were, should be actually considered as part of Danny's side. It seems like they're going to have the impact of potentially roasting and killing people from both sides in the coming battle. Yeah, hashtag wild cards. Yeah, I don't think that the dragons necessarily fall on one side or another. I mean, they're animals, and we see this during the dance, which you're going to, I guess, come to later. But also, <laughs> there's so much just... Not free will, but just this force this entire force that is supposed to i guess sort of represent the untamable in some ways uh you're playing with fire right and also the that idea of weaponry it's about whose hands they're in but this idea of barristan sort of waiting for Daenerys to show up it, it i brought this up last episode with the corpses being thrown over the walls of marine but the battle for marine just gives me very blackwater vibes mm. and barristan hoping for danny to show up and save the day while no one like really knew for sure that the lannister forces were gonna make it it, it in a way feels to me kind of like how they're hoping that tywin lannister and you know the tyrells uh appear and they're able to secure that victory for the crown yeah i think it's a great point and it feels very much like that Martin wanted to have the Battle of Marine in A Dance with Dragons to close out the book in the same way that he had the Battle of the Blackwater essentially close out a Clash of Kings, yeah. for sure. R.I.P. Yeah, it really also gives a sense to how George wanted to do this story in phases after uh, deciding upon it not just being a trilogy. So uh, obviously he was hoping for three-ish phases, Lord. but... <laughs> 
Guess it's going to be four or five, maybe, maybe six. Maybe like. 12. Maybe, maybe the, the 13 of Karth. The 12th book. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, hope, let's hope not. Let's hope it gets closed well, out at some point soon. In that 12th book, hopefully we'll get the reveal on who the harpy is Lol. since no one knows. No one, None of us know. No Bullshit. I know, right? Everyone knows. Come on. I think it's it's so funny because there's I've I've seen so many outlandish theories, but I don't feel like I've seen a whole lot of outlandish theories about who the harpy is. There's pretty much a broad general agreement about who the harpy is. And who is the harpy? We can all say it at three, two, one, right? Yeah. Three, yeah. two, one. His dark. What are you what is <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> what happened? You tricked me. <laughs> I was taking this very seriously, everyone. <laughs> but no, you're, you're right. Galazagalar is, is definitely the harpy. And she is the one who is controlling, essentially, the harpy who has the aims of restoring slavery and marine. That is initially until they're willing to abandon slavery, reopen the fighting pits, and to preserve the kingship of the magnificent and worshipful Hizdar Zolorak. Um, so about the, the Galaza Galera, as you guys have talked about previously, she is a, um, she is known as the Green Grace. She is essentially in charge of the religious practice in Marine. And, you know, just get it totally out of the way. Galaza is the freaking harpy. But because you fucking nitwit morons are going to come huffing and puffing into my mentions with yesterday's dinner on your breath takes, here's why she is the harpy. Uh, one, she's unusually knowledgeable about the harpy's actions and motivations. She knows about the sons of the harpies murdering the Miranese weaver before Danny even tells her in Danny's fourth chapter. She knows the exact number of people the sons of the harpy have killed when Barristan imprisons his dar, and she gives the motivation for why they're attacking to get his dar freed. Hmm. Well, that seems a little suspicious, huh? Hmm. 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 Right. And then it's, and then of course it's her plan to marry Daenerys and Hizdar, and her belief that it will end the violence. And then it works. Like, wow, what a coincidence that this very thing that you say, if the, you marry Hizdar Zolorik, then the then the violence will end. Seems pretty interesting, right? A little bit suspicious. It's not a setup. No, of course not. Not a setup whatsoever. And then seemingly she's sympathetic to Daenerys, but she's also the one who's pushing. The Harpy's dress code and the code of conduct onto Daenerys. And for that point, I actually uh, read uh, Noble One, Nobody Suspects the Butterflies, excellent post on Tumblr. I will give send you guys the link if you guys want to link that in your show notes yes. or whatnot. An excellent Tumblr Absolutely. in general. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. If you haven't checked out Butterfly, please check out her Tumblr. She writes great yeah. stuff. Uh, she on all sorts of ASWAP stuff. I love this quote from the Green Grace in A Dance of Dragons. The mother of dragons must don the tokar or be forever hated, warned the green grace, Galaza Galar. You know, like, obviously you're like, oh, that's not, that's not like a very silent, subtle, almost threat to your reign whatsoever. <laughs> no. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, we wear green, yeah. more like. You can't sit with us. Uh, and there's also another line uh, in dance, which... I have a lot of emotions about Galaza Galar. I think she's a sneaky old bitch and I like her, but <laughs> I mean, minus like all the bad, like slavery money and shit. But I mean, like besides that, she's like, damn, good for you. Hustle. It's a hustle. Uh, it was these calamities that transformed my people into slavers. Galaza Galar had told her at the temple of the graces. And I am the calamity that will change these slavers back into people. Danny had sworn to herself. <laughs> 
the Green Grace is the puppet master behind the scenes in Marine. She's attended by all of the different graces. When Daenerys is gone, something I mentioned last week, the blue graces are needed in the city to tend the sick from the pale mare, and they're nowhere to be found. Hmm. Last episode, I said that, you know, they, Eliana and I discussed, they could have died. It's quite possibly, it could be a coincidence, could not be, but, you know, thinking about it, I feel more and more confident it's probably not a coincidence. Galaza seems to pull the strings for Daenerys's marriage, and her character motivation is clearly spelled out in that quote about the calamities that transformed her people into slavers from Danny Three. That is basically her character motivation. That's her telling us, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm the villain. Uh, she also begins to spin her own narrative about Daenerys's death in the Queen's Hand to Barristan after they go to court and Daenerys's death is announced. Even your own young queen, fair Daenerys, who called herself the mother of dragons, we saw her burning that day in the pit. Even she was not safe from the dragon's wrath. By overpowering Barristan in conversation and with the court being told Danny's dead, it shows the spider web of the Green Grace and the slaver lord seizing pack power in the city. <laughs> so, because we've been drawing so many comparisons between the situation in Reen and showing how, yes, the Game of Thrones is the same anywhere in the world. I believe, I want to say it was you that I was talking to, right, Chloe, who was saying that the Danny and Cersei chapters were when Feast and Dance were yes. one book, right? They were supposed to actually have been very close to one another, like, in terms of chronology and when the reading order. And it makes me wonder if we were supposed to be reading Galazi Galare and uh, the interactions she has with Danny as being very similar to the interactions that Cersei has with the High Sparrow. You could see the differences in how each of them treats the leader of a religious order. Like, how receptive are they to these different demands and, you know, how political, how e that head of state interacts with this religious head, those those ideas of political power and the concessions that each one makes and sort of judge each one individually, but compare them to one another. Yeah, doing things for the greater good, rearming their faith militant, mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. Definitely. And George did say Cersei and Daenerys chapters originally were going to be some of them back to back to kind of promote the difference in their ruling style and the contrast between the two. Yeah, that's great. I think it's terrific. I think Martin has said specifically that one of the things that readers lost out in not having a Feast for Crows and a Dance of Dragons is one book is that very thing where you would be able to contrast and compare Daenerys and Cersei's rule of King's Landing versus Danny's rule. Let me do it again. Where you'd be comparing Danny's rule of Marine to Cersei's rule of Westeros and King's Landing, mostly. But yeah, it's it's fascinating too to take a look at who Galaza Galar is, and I love that comparison with her as the High Sparrow. Although she, she is much more subtle than the High Sparrow, I would say uh, the High Sparrow is very much like you. As soon as you're introduced to this guy in Cersei's sixth chapter in A Feast for Crows, you're like, this guy is going to fuck Cersei over big time. <laughs> Gal Galaza Galar is much more subtle and much more of an advisor to Danny than the High Sparrow is. The High Sparrow is almost separated out from Cersei Lannister and her rule, but they do occupy similar spaces in being religious figures that can stir the population into, into a frenzy on, on behalf of or against the ruling party, as we're going to find out. Um, but there's one key difference between Galaza Galera and the High Sparrow, and that is the High Sparrow is male and the 
in Galaza Galera is female. And that is, to me, another potential hint of who Galaza Galera is, because the harpy in Gascari and our own culture is female. And it would be thematic, and it would make thematic and atmospheric sense for the harpy to be female. And as far as we know, she is the only major female great master character that Daenerys encounters in A Dance with Dragons, that Daenerys and Barristan encounter in A Dance with Dragons. So that seems very much to be pointing us, pointing the reader to the fact that Galaza Galera is the harpy. But the one other character that is sometimes mentioned as the harpy is Histarzo Lorak. And the question I have for you gals is, is, is he a patsy of the harpy? Or is he more part of the conspiracy as a whole? I think he's a total patsy. They are pinning it on him. I think he just knows he was promised the rule and he was promised to have the throne in Marine, and he is a total puppet king. If Galaza is the puppet master, he is a total puppet king. He is the Tommen of the Cersei, you know, that's... <laughs> or the Renly Yeah, absolutely. He's... I guess he probably knows a little bit, but he, they, they don't let him in all the board meetings, you mm-hmm. know? They, he's just got the money. Daddy's got the money yeah. in the wallet, and they just say, you're going to be king. In some of the previous chapters we've examined from Barrison's point of view, I do think you can see that in his star's reactions to how things have gone. He sort of thinks I was promised to be king, to have this, like, hot wife and this rule and be in charge of Marine, and then suddenly, like, Barristan, he's, sudden, he's like, oh, I'm actually really responsible for these people now, and people are yeah. dying. But it, it seems to me that George wants us to, well, he tries to provide this false breadcrumb trail that Hisdar is the harpy. When Barristan interrogates Hisdar Zolorak in The Kingbreaker, he does act suspiciously-ish, but not that suspiciously i would say in that he's like no i'm not the harpy and then there's one point where he stops answering barristan's questions and barristan takes that to be acknowledgement that he is the harpy but i think at that point his knew what was what the game was and that barristan was not going to take i'm not the harpy as the answer to his his questions yeah hashtag lack of evidence against is not evidence for it's a meta commentary in the series (laughs) Never mind. <laughs> and to be fair, it uh, it might be one of the things that is not good for Barristan for his story. That might be something that comes back to bite him, and I think it will. I really do think it will. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, because the uh, the one yeah. final faction in Marine are the Shavepates, led by Skahazmo Kandak, and these are a different type of people than we than we than we've described previously they're marinese but they're not former slaves or lower class marinese they are upper class nobles who shave the flamboyant gascari hairstyles to signify their abandonment of the harpy lifestyle and the question is whether they're actually true believers in danny and her crusade or whether they're taking advantage of the situation to assert themselves as the new power to be in marine I think the Shavepates are definitely using this situation to advance their position. Uh, they see Danny's cause as the better, easier, righteous path than supporting the Harpy and the power struggle. I think Skahaz sees Daenerys' side as a means to break away from the old instillment of the Graces and Slavers and have control in this vacuum of power that's been left in Drogon and Daenerys' flight. 
he's kind of threaded himself and his own military across the Daenerys faction. So it's like a, if we go down, we go down together or we take over kind of thing. And he seems to kind of want to be on what he thinks will be the winning side. He implements the Brazen Beasts and Daenerys promotes them throughout the city. But now if Daenerys rescinds that promotion, Skahaz has an upper hand as he has a position of power over the city with the Brazen Beasts. I also love that one quote from him to Barristan. We will rue your old man's honor before this game is done. It's hmm. a very little fingery taunt. Yeah, it is. Very. I did warn you not to trust me. Skahaz Mokandak is really a fascinating figure. He's probably my favorite Miranese character himself. And he's really, uh, he's really fascinating because he presents as an ally of Daenerys, but his motivation is not, and his motivation in taking down his Darzo Loric and Barrison's chapters is not so noble because he has this line that I think is really dripping with this haunting, let me do it again. He has this line which really kind of indicates where his motivation in doing all this. And he has this line that says, long has Kandak waited for this night. And Barrison thinks, that is as much as I fear. And that's really, really, really indicative of what Skahaz is in this game for. He's in this game because Kandak has not taken the prominence that the Zolorak family, that the Lorak family has in Marine. But now he has the chance to make things right. And he's utilizing Barristan, the Unsullied, the Cell Swords, the Freedman Companies in order to ensure that his family comes into prominence and power in Marine. <laughs> Is that how the song goes? Yup. <laughs> yeah. You know the song. You know the song. I think we did really good on that. I can feel it's it. Classic. Calling Calling in the air Oh Lord. oh Lord! Patreon only content, right? That's we right. should do karaoke for the Patreon. Oh my God! <sighs> yes. Okay. But um, you got me singing again. That happens on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Man, I don't get to sing in not a cast. I guess I should, I should talk with Emmett about that. Yeah, you're, you're real yeah, serious. Why don't you? You've, uh, you got to come on Girls Gone Canon. You're an official Girl Gone Canon right now. You've gone canon. Hell yeah. You could have Hell yeah. You could have the Amen breakdown. Every time you say Amen, brothers, you put the... You know, the Amen breakdown. I can actually do it. Something like that. Yes. Yeah, like that. All right. So talk about the locusts. Tell me about the locusts. Yes. So... I think Skaha's Mokandak's most interesting and soon to be infamous deed was to be the one who actually poisons the locusts that Daenerys is the one that poisons the locusts that Strong Belwas ingests in Danny's ninth chapter to Dance with Dragons. And I, as always, I recommend Adam Feldman's excellent essay on it, in which is called Who Poisoned the Locusts? In which he fingers Skahas Mokandak as the figure as to why. At, fingers Skahas Mokandak as the person who poisoned locusts. And the reason why he does that is to jumpstart conflict between the overpowered Daenerys, her dragons, army, and freemen versus the great masters that he wants to overthrow and kill. And to include the children of the great masters. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that essay series. And I think that for a lot of people, they can say that the Miranese blot blogs have helped them rethink the way that the Miranese chapters have been positioned and think more deeply about it. But of course, part of those Miranese chapters are Barristan's POV chapters. So just, you know, what are people's favorite parts? What do you like about Barristan's POV so far? I, uh, I'm a sucker for overwhelmingly like guilty characters that slowly fill themselves with very mild self-loathing. So between like the Barristan old man nostalgia breaks we've been doing and the pre A Song of Ice and Fire exposition dumps, which are also my favorite, and even Barristan knowing he could have been better, he could have been a true knight, his arc has been so satisfying to me, especially as we've isolated it these last few weeks. Uh, he clings to his honor, to his religion, as we see in the last few chapters of his, uh, him thinking about the Seven and the Warrior, to the things that make him feel human and make up for his past mistakes in his head. I also love that his story, which echoes Eddard's noir arc in A Game of Thrones, becomes a fable in the end as well, from the masked beasts to the herons and the little pigeon and red lamb in his The Winds of Winter chapters. It reminds me of Tyrion One in A Dance with Dragon. The you Westerosi are all the same. You sow some beast upon a scrap of silk and suddenly you are all lions or dragons or eagles. But as Eliana and as Jeff and I have been saying, it's the same everywhere you go. But the brazen beasts wear different masks also. So it's just really interesting kind of to see. I mean, even comparing to reading Ned last, there are many similarities in the arc and the journey, although Ned's plot feels a bit more like a beginning and Bearston's a means to an eventual end. I did find myself yearning for a look at more characters from time to time as he was very isolated in Marine, but I think it was still a really good experience to get them back to back and get into his headspace. Yeah. In fact, I, I think the Barristan Ned comparison was the way that George was able to write his way out of the Marinese knot. And I think what he ended up doing in order to finish Dance with Dragons back in 2010, so he comes on to Barristan as a point of view character in early 2010 as the way that he can slice open the Marinese knot is that he hit on the idea that the Game of Thrones is played everywhere, which is what I said earlier, and he realized he could tell a Marinese version of it through a Ned Stark archetype, and that Ned Stark archetype is Sir Barristan Selmy. And I kind of just want to dig into this idea a little more. I was talking with Aziz a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how he wanted to hear us talk a little more about this Ned Barristan thing, and I think what's interesting to me is we've talked a little bit about how they inhabit very similar roles. And of course, they have conceptions of honor. But I think that Ned is in some ways much more utilitarian than Barristan. Like, the past that Ned has had leads him to have a more complex relationship with that idea of honor. And I think that's because he's had just more personal connections with different kinds of people and losses because of that which, of course, came out of the Rebellion, which also impacted Barristan. But with Ned being that second son and then eventually becoming a lord, someone who didn't take any vows the way that Barristan had, Ned had a family with his father and his siblings and probably his mother, some woman, I guess. And he had, like, this best friend, and then eventually Ned had a new family that he made. These personal connections very much shaped him and his conception of honor and how it works in the world, and, of course, honor's flexibility and different kinds of honor. Ned, having gone through so much trauma and pain, 
knows that life is not a song, but that hurt prevented him from being able to pass that lesson on to his children. Whereas, coming back to Aziz again, he was talking about how Bearston is like that child star, and Bearston still very much has yet to learn that life is not a song. He's lived just so long being this legend of Bearston the Bold, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and he, so he's been able to just live in this fantasy and has lost very little in terms of those personal connections. Like, we never see Barristan talk about his parents, <laughs> and he was the first son. He was going to inherit. He was going to get everything. You know, he was going to get all these wheat stocks. By <laughs> um, what right? He, I know. I was thinking about that earlier, and we don't hear him really talk about the rest of the Selmies, the woman that he was betrothed to marry, who ends up marrying his cousin instead. Like he doesn't even seem to have very much friends or close connections among the King's Guard. Maybe he has admiration for them, which, of course, he also admires Dario, so that doesn't say much. <laughs> so, despite having once been, quote-unquote, brothers of the Kingsguard, you don't see the same connections between Barristan and the other Kingsguard that you see between, like, John and Pip and Gren and Sam, right? Yeah. And he doesn't really seem to mourn his brothers when he loses them. He might mourn the idea of, oh, Arthur Dane, he was such a great Or Lewin. Or Lewin, still a great name. Um, he mourns the idea of them, same way as he mourns the idea of Ashara. And he lives in these ideas of those people, the songs and fantasies, because he's never really gotten to know them. And I think that's where Barristan's conception of honor comes from. And there's also a part of me that wonders if Barristan struggles with making close bonds with anyone. He doesn't really seem to make close connections with any of the boys that he's teaching. He gets satisfaction, of course, out of being their teacher and guiding them and showing them what chivalry is. But, I mean, again, like Chloe was saying, did Barristan ever have a chance to get to know anyone? Maybe, maybe not. Is the King's Guard just set up so differently from the Night's Watch that this these fraternal bonds are not forged like we see though that arthur dane and Rhaegar seem to have a very close friendship maybe that's different from barristan but that what is honor compared to a woman's love barristan doesn't know that so he can't he has this one idea of what honor is right i think you're you're absolutely correct in that there are very key differences between Ned and Barristan and their personality. And something that kind of comes to mind is a theme that gets brought up in the great HBO miniseries Band of Brothers in one of their episodes called The Replacements, I think it's the episode title, where they have a bunch of new guys that come into the company of men who are fighting in, in World War II in Easy Company of 101st Airborne Division. And none of them get, none of the new guys, they get close, none of the, none of the old guys get close to the new guys because they've feel like they're all going, going to be killed. And that, to me, reads mm. as an interesting read into who Barrison is psychologically because how many of the Kingsguard were killed during Robert's Rebellion? I think it was all but him and and Jamie, essentially, right? Yeah, his favorite. <laughs> yeah, right, his favorite. The one guy he doesn't he specifically doesn't like, the one guy <laughs> who Stannis recounts, again, second Stannis mention, hi Emmett, is the... Uh, <laughs> It's the uh, 
Hi, mom. Hi, mom. Hi, hi, podcast husband. Um, the one guy that he he hates and 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 thinks that he should have been sent to the wall is the one guy that survives, and all the guys that he admired. And again, it's a detached admiration, as as you point out excellently. That's the one guy that survives. Everyone else that he admires all dies. And I think that's very much speaking to the military nature that Barrison encounters in that. You don't want to get too close to people because those close personal connections, they can break you in the long term if you're going to be watching these men and women die in battle as you're going to be progressing through your military career. I think for me, the Barrison-Ned connection and comparison is more thematic in the roles that they occupy by in a dance with dragons for barrison and game of thrones for ned is that they're both handed the king you know barrison's final chapter is called the queen's hand where barrison has to assume a role that he is completely unfamiliar and potentially unsuited for as the hand of the queen and as a political act as a political actor barrison also seems unsure of himself in the same way that ned is constantly seeming out of his depth in king in king's landing Ned has had the background of being the Lord Paramount of the North and dealing with issues of rule and leadership. Barristan really hasn't. He was the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. He only had to deal with six other dudes besides himself as the as the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And now he's thrust into the role of essentially running the city of Marine. It seems like a bit babe out of the it seems a little bit fish out of the water for Barristan. And Barristan is constantly talking about how he doesn't have a mind for this, that these plots were all the workings of Varas and Littlefinger back in King's Landing and that he never really engaged in them. That's very troubling, I guess, for Barristan because he has to kind of be thinking a little bit outside the box. And Barristan is a very much in-the-box thinker. Like, I can solve things with my sword. I can figure things out more easily with in a military context as opposed to a political and a peaceful rule leadership context. Absolutely. It really brings out a lot of the contrast between Ned and Barristan and their motivations and what they were capable of, too. So I think you made a great point there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome, buddy. <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 more as opposed to more general connections between Barristan. Essentially, we're writing the Game of Thrones arc of a, a dude who's unsuited for a role being thrust into it and then having to deal with a role that he's unfamiliar with and the more specifics you kind of get some clear divergences between the two characters and their stories but in kind of the broad 10,000 foot view of Barristan he does occupy a similar role of Ned as being the befuddled a bit in over his head character who has to deal with these different plots and conspiracies that are occurring in King's Landing at the time. Well, with that, we come to a little bit of what's to come for Barristan in The Winds of Winter, which I guess this can be a tiny bit of a preview for next week's episode. A reminder that we are doing a full Winds of Winter episode for Barristan next week. We uh, want to briefly talk about where he's going in The Winds of Winter, a couple of our predictions that will move us towards the end of this episode. And next week, we will have a full, uh, strong episode analysis of his first chapter in the winds of winter and the second chapter's summary since we don't actually have it fully out right now yeah i thought you were gonna say strong mill voice you said strong <laughs> then you paused i was like what is she gonna are we doing is it a strong are we doing a <laughs> strong bell is that what we're doing i mean that patreon nonsense. oh my god so where barristan is sitting right now in marine 
he is sitting between several POVs that are about to conjoin, like Victorian. And, of course, Tyrion is also right in the area. He is right there, too. So he's sitting right in the middle of all of this. Uh, and, of course, in the Iron with the Ironborn, with Victorian and Victorian 1, in The Winds of Winter, he says, Free the slaves and feed the slavers to the sea, but take the ships. We will have need of every hole to carry us back home. <laughs> We're going to get Victorian and Barristan interactions, and they are going to be the stupidest conversations I have ever read. <laughs> oh my god, I never even realized it, but yeah, you're totally right. Hello, old man. Like, what are they going to read like? Like, what is he going to say? This is like me talking to Barristan. I don't... Maybe they're going to talk about just, like, sports. That's what, like, athletes do, right? Maybe they'll talk about golf. Yeah, or like, oh, you use a sword like that? I hold my axe like this. Yeah, golf. That was a callback. It was golf. Yeah, I, I got it. I got uh -huh. it after yeah. a while. <laughs> uh -huh. it, took me, yeah. it took me a second. That's why I was like, oh, wait, yes, you're I'm right. Tracking. Like, golf. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. I'm, I'm feeling the shade being thrown on me. My lights have dimmed a little bit in my, my little study here. Um, what, what I think bring back Duke yeah he he, he uh, bolted like a bat out of hell upstairs for some reason I'm not sure why rude one of the things that I'm I think is going to be funny is I can imagine a conversation with between Barristan and Victorian going like hey Barristan you know how I like won the day and like brought like my Ironborn and like defeated the Yunkish Barristan would be like yeah dude you remember that one time where I totally like whipped your ass at Old Wick and took one of the your great islands from the Iron from one of your great Iron Islands during the Great Joy Rebellion. That was a good time. That was a good time. I love that we're getting all these people finally meeting up and having awkward interactions. I love that eventually we'll probably get that with like Jamie and Bran and you know it's all these characters. That is the best part about the last two books. I think you're right. One of the funny things is that Victorian has this line from the Reaver chapter from A Feast for Crows where he thinks about how he would give half his teeth for the chance to try his axe against the Kingslayer and the Knight of Flowers. That was the sort of battle he understood. <laughs> I... <laughs> it's so bad. It's, oh my god. I'm rooting for Loras. Or Jamie. I'm rooting for anyone that's not Victoria. I mean, I think Victoria is a fantastic character. I think he's hilarious. I'm, <laughs> I think he's, he's great. When you guys get into Victoria and someday down the road, I'll be definitely fascinating yeah. to see what you guys would say about him uh, I don't think that Barristan and Victorian will meet in single combat on the battlefield I know that yeah. has been proposed as a potential theory but I think Victorian th there's a possibility that Victorian might be dead long before he even sees and meets Barristan I think that's a possibility especially since you have Victorian being tempted to blow the dragon horn like, a, like an idiot because he is an idiot or as George would say he's dumb as a stump and uh, having him blow the dragon horn would very much fit Victorian's character as that dumb of the dumbest of stump, even knowing from the Valyrian glyphs that the man who blows the horn will bring death upon himself, which is what Makoro interprets to Victorian in uh, Victorian's second chapter in A Dance of Dragons. In The Winds of Winter, Victorian has basically, he is setting... Uh, these kids, these uh, thralls, he's setting these young thralls up to blow the horn, each oh one God. of them one time, because he figures if they blow it three times, they'll die like the other people have. But if each of them blows it one time really good, then it'll work out. And I just have a feeling like one of them's going to blow it <laughs> weakly, like really badly. And he's going to be like, I'll do it. And he grabs it from him and he just does it and he freaking dies. 
Oh, I've, I've got it. So this is probably one of the, the those lines that I'm going to giggle at in The Winds of Winter. But in one of the fan recounts of the end of the Victorian chapter from The Winds of Winter, he's literally lying in his bed saying, my dragon, my horn, yeah, my dragon, my <laughs> horn, like over and over again to Makoro and the Dusky Woman. And you're like, whew, oh boy, <laughs> Victorian, how, how, how much you have fallen, my friend, how much you have fallen. But you have to do it in the Victorian voice. My dragon. My horn, my dragon, my horn. <laughs> he's almost like Milton in the off or in office space, and he's just sitting there. He's like, "Do you have my my dragon?" And then like he's gonna burn the building down, but really he blows the horn and he dies. I don't know, but like I'm just like. So he burns himself down. Yes, yes, indeed. So what's Barrison going to be doing in the Winds of Winter? I know you guys are going to be talking about Barrison's opening moves in the book, but read me in beyond that, like his like his broader scheme. Well, is he going to win the Battle of Fire? Is he going to be fighting Victarion, which we don't I, I guess we had already talked about that, so we can cut that. Is he going to be surviving the Battle of Fire? And we can talk about that more in depth in a little bit, but your guys' thoughts about who Barristan is going to be in the Winds of Winter and what his plot purpose and roles are going to be. So I do think that Barrison definitely survives until later on in The Winds of Winter, just because we know that Tyrion Lannister is, of course, entering the stage of Meereen. He's he's on the wings. He's been trying to he's been trying to get a role up there on the stage for a while, and we also know that George has said that. Tyrion and Danny will cross paths towards the end of the book. And now, like, I'm not taking the show as, like, canon or anything. But obviously, they're going to meet somehow in Marine. And I think that Barristan just has to still be there and in some sort of seat of political power for, you know, to meet Tyrion, to not necessarily embrace him, but be like, oh, hello, you're here. <laughs> and, you know, kind of welcome him in and be like, I guess I have to let you stay here. And, you know, I just think that Bearson has to be there as a sort of post for Tyrion to meet before he can... Sort of as a, I don't know, a, a wayhouse or something... For him to be able to meet up with Danny, does that make sense? Sure. How I've described that. Yeah, I think that's the link between definitely. Uh, like you had said, uh, he needs a political foothold. He needs someone he knows. Tyrion can't just show up and charm the shave pates. That's not going to happen for him. Those two will definitely have to come together at some point, and that Barristan chapter will be great too. He's literally going to have to hold his tongue so hard. He's going to hate <laughs> him so much. He's going to be like, oh, this little shit. Yeah. They're going to, yeah, Barristan's going to just not get along with all these people. He's not going to get along with Victorian, assuming Victorian shows up. He's not going to get along with Tyrion, who's like, oh, by the way, uh, your shitty nephew fired me. Kind of also your sister. <laughs> and you did that thing that I hated your brother for, where you killed that king, but you kind of didn't. And your dad. So, I mean, it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic for sure. So, yeah. So, as you guys are going to be talking about next week, which I'm very excited to hear your thoughts about Barrison's two Winds of Winter chapters. We know that he's going to be very much involved in the Battle of Fire because he's, because he is the best and senior commander of Danny's forces in Marine. And then 
you know, I'll, I'll leave some of the particulars of the battle itself and how it opens up. But there is some foreshadowing in A Dance with Dragons of different things that we're going to see. One of the things that seems very strongly foreshadowed is that Barristan is going to be engaged in some single combat with that fucking asshole Bloodbeard. The guy yes. who killed Grolio. That dude needs to fucking die. Rude. He needs to fucking die. And I love this line from The Discarded Knight where Barristan is looking at Bloodbeard and he says, Give me half a reason to dance with you and we will see who is laughing at the end. Bam! My skin is like tingling right now about all that shit. That's awesome. I love the fact that Barristan wants to like kill this guy. And, you know, one of the things that's really sad is that Grolio is, is that Barristan has known Grolio for a while, sailed halfway f- around the world from Pentos with Grolio. So he's kind of a friend, for lack of a better term, with Grolio. And he's and Grolio has been murdered by Bloodbeard and by the Swords. He's ready to deal justice to Bloodbeard. So I'm all about that. And then you have you have another line later in the chapter where it says, Sir Barrison never took his eyes off Bloodbeard. He came to sack a city, and his dar's peace has cheated him of his plunder. He would do whatever he must to start the bloodshed. I I think that's really cool for Barristan that he's very much looking at Bloodbeard. And, you know, as much as I criticize Barristan for his kind of not the best moves in Marine, he does accurately view Bloodbeard, accurately surmise his intention and what he, why he's doing what he's doing there. Um but yeah, I, I think that's that's that. I think the Battle of Fire is going to be the one place that Barristan is going to shine. It's going to be the pinnacle of Barristan's arc where he's in his element. But from there, after the Battle of Fire, you know, kind of anything is on the table for Barristan. From in my perspective, there's a lot of trouble on the horizon. Everyone, there's a lot of trouble for Barristan on the horizon because everyone has a motivation to want to see Sir Grandfather dead. Yeah, and I mean, even if we just look at it from a very, just like a technical standpoint, how many chapters will Barristan have in this book? Where will they be? And then Daenerys, when will Daenerys come back? Halfway through the book? Three quarters of the way through the book? I mean, right now... At the end of The Winds of Winter. Yeah, it's the end of yeah Winds of right? Oh, no. Like, exactly. There's so much. If she, cause She's probably not coming back till about at least three quarters of the way through the book, I would wager. Like, I would... I would put a few bucks on that. I don't think she'll come back (laughs) before then. I think it'll be about 75% in. So you have Tyrion and Barristan then in Marine, and Victorian, I'm guessing, will die somehow, probably by halfway or three quarters of the way to the book. I I don't believe he'll meet Daenerys, probably not. But as we know from uh, kind of the Winds of Winter chapters, he is coming in from the rear on uh, the Yunkish, and they were worried it was going to be the Valentine fleet, but... It was not. It was the Iron, the Ironborn coming in. So, and they are killing off the enemies and helping, uh, unbeknownst to them that they're helping. Probably they just think they're trying to win to get Daenerys. But so, I mean, there's so much happening and converging, and POVs that are going to be collapsed. It kind of makes you wonder where it's all going and technically how certain things can happen. Wild card. Yep. <laughs> Check out the Aces and Jokers podcast. Oh my god. They're nice people. They are nice people. Um, they are. Yeah, I don't know about Victorian. I haven't thought about him <laughs> enough to like really think about where I think his storyline's going. But I definitely agree with the Danny part. Yeah, I don't think Victorian will have more than like two or three chapters. You know, yeah. like I can't see his plot lasting more than three chapters. This this book. Well, the question is: Is Barristan going to have more than three chapters in the Winds of Winter? Yeah. 
you know, I, I, well, I think we've, we've all are, we can be pretty confident from the, the, the sample chapters of wins that Victorian will have at least one more chapter and Barrison will have at least one more chapter. That seems pretty clear, right? Right. It, it, it kind of matches up with the number of chapters that George dedicated to the Battle of the Blackwater, where you have seven chapters between the perspectives of Davos, Tyrion, and Sansa in A Clash of Kings, having seven chapters from the perspectives of from the perspectives of Barristan, Tyrion, and Victorian, kind of makes sense, I think. Um, it'd be a nice kind of uh, paralleling with the Battle of Blackwater. But after the Battle of Fire, though, it, what happens with Barristan? You know, like I said, everyone seems to want him dead. The Harpy is in a pickle. The Harpy, they want him dead. They want Barristan dead, but they don't want to get their ass sacked and sold into slavery, which is what Young Kai and, and Volantis are interested in. And Barristan's the best commander in hope to defeat Young Kai. So what should they do? And my take is that they, the Harpy will let Barristan win the battle or fight the battle, and then they will try to take his life afterwards. But if they do so, who will do the deed? And this is where we get into someone's winter territory and that there's a great and that Barristan takes a look around the soldiers who are about to engage in the Battle of Fire, and he sees a number of these pit fighters that are standing around them, and he has this really optimistic thought, perhaps naive thought, and that he thinks that freedom means something to them after all. The pit <laughs> fighters had more love for Hisdar than they had ever shown Daenerys, but Selmy was glad to have them all the same. Well, they, he might not be glad to have them all the same if one of them tries to take his life in the Battle of Fire, or right after Barristan wins the Battle of Fire. But I personally think that he'll survive the Harpy assassination. And I think the people who might save him would be someone interesting, like the Stormcrows, which would be kind of cool because Barrison is shown to have a dismissive and condescending attitude towards the Stormcrows. You know, as we were talking about earlier, it'd be funny if Dario saves Barristan's life. I think that would be mm. kind of an interesting way that Barristan would be like, this dude saved my life? Come on, anyone but this guy should have saved my life. But... You know, it's it's interesting to see. It's potentially interesting that they might be the factor that George introduces to save Barristan from the pit fighters that seem to be more aligned with more aligned to his star than to Daenerys and her cause. Or hot take. It's not that hot. Um, it's the Second Sons. We know that Tyrion has mm -hmm. enlisted them, and they're about to switch sides. And that's a perfect way for Tyrion's storyline to intersect with Barristan's for the Second Sons to save him and of course like as you said he it disdains dario but he must dislike brown ben plum a cell sword who has turned cloak hmm. even more yeah that'd be great yeah and of course that will also help to make the pov slim down i mean that's where you can get less barristan for a hot minute and you'll be getting mm -hmm. Tyrion. so even if he did four or five barristan chapters i just yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I know Jeff has his very spicy, wonderful theory that he's written <laughs> way too many words about that. If too you many. have listened to Damn. I said what I said, I'm doing five chapters on Ashara, Damn. so don't worry about it. You know, that's actually a hot take. Like being like, oh, too many words. Damn. He knows what he's about. We've talked oh, about yeah. it. He's like, I could have written more. <laughs> I could have. Yeah. <laughs> Only part 29 of the Blood of the Conqueror series oh was about Barristan. It was about Paris and Selby, so... Only part 733 out of 820 was about Barris and Selby, but it was still great. It was still great. I appreciate great, that. Thank you. It was a good 180,000-word piece that I enjoyed. Uh, 
No, but you have your take. And of course, if you listen to Nauticast's special Patreon episode about Sir Barristan Selmy, uh, you will have heard it all about it and about his fate. <laughs> but Jeff, would you like to give me your spicy hot summed up take that I totally I, I, respect? Hold on, I'm going to find. I do respect it. I respect I fi- it. It's very nuanced. We're just we're just being mean because we're we're good friends with Jeff. You know how like so I was talking to someone recently this weekend, like people you don't necessarily know that well if you're in person, you gotta like actually be nice to them. But with my friends, like I'm gonna bring out the claws. Oh, yeah, like even, I have trust in our friendship. I don't really like people, so <laughs> Yeah. Well like with my friends I'm like, yeah, no, I disagree. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I so. mean Jeff already knows how I feel about his theory. I think that it's wrong and ugly, but it's not bad, it's just wrong and ugly. See, you can be wrong and ugly, but still beautiful on the inside, just like me. Exactly. You're a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful butterfly, Jeff. I am. But, you know, and it, to kind of take us back into this, this argument, I will quote the good and noble Azora High, who is, of course, his Darzo Loric in From a Dance with Dragons from Danny's first chapter. What are you doing? Where... <laughs> you know it's strong Belvis. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot what cast him in. <laughs> Where he says, and, and I will present this to you all, if you, if your graces will hear my arguments, my new arguments, my beautiful arguments. <laughs> I have new words, lovely words, courteous oh and more apt to move the queens. The, be- the best words. <laughs> this was the worst idea. <laughs> Why did we invite them? <laughs> Why did we save this for this the end? Been, we've been going on so long. We are almost at two it's hours. It's great. <laughs> yeah, you, you shouldn't have brought me on. Like, you, you guys brought the person who wrote 155,000 fucking words about Aegon in The Winds of Winter. More than George has probably written about us all. Probably. <laughs> I told, hey, right. I understand you. We know this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I want to tell you all the story of a brave knight from the Stormlands who faces divided loyalties between the king and the queen. He serves the queen for a long time, but eventually the queen dismisses him from his service, and he goes to serve the king. The king being Aegon. Am I talking about Barristan Selmy? No, I'm actually not. I'm talking about Sir Criston Cole, who, of course, as we know from The Princess and the Queen, had served Queen Rhaenyra for a long time and was her lover, which is something that Barristan is not towards Daenerys, but... The parallel still is there, and then eventually serves Aegon in The Princess and the Queen and becomes one of one of Aegon's best commanders in The Dance of the Dragons and eventually dies in The Dance of the Dragons. One of the things that George has talked about in interviews is that he plans on featuring a second Dance of the Dragons in The Winds of Winter. He has said something like, I will not feature, I will not, he said that the second Dance of the Dragons will be a central plot of one of the books altogether. Uh, fucking goddamn, I can't remember the quote. Um, he said that the second Dance of the Dragons will be a central central plot feature for a future book, that future book, book being either The Wind's Winter or Jim of Spring. And I think there is a clear parallel when we're looking at The Princess and the Queen of the Dance of the Dragons to what we're going to be seeing with Aegon and Daenerys come The Wind's Winter or A Dream of Spring. And there's a great little pull quote that I was reading today as we were praying for this episode where George is describing Aegon II and his greens and it says, quote, 
Aegon's Greens enjoyed other advantages as well. Old Town, King's Landing, and Lannisport were the largest and richest cities in the realm. All three were held by Greens. Every visible symbol of legitimacy belonged to Aegon. He sat the Iron Throne. He lived in the Red Keep. He wore the Conqueror's crown, wielded the Conqueror's sword, and had been anointed by a Septon of the Faith before the eyes of the ten, before the eyes of tens of thousands. Grand Maester Orwell sat in his councils, and this is the important part. The Lord Commander of the King's Guard had placed the crown upon his princely head, and he was male, which in the eyes of many made him the rightful king, his half-sister, the usurper. One of the things George has also talked about in A Feast for Crows is that time is a wheel and that what perforce chances happened in the past will happen again. I think we're going to be seeing something similar happening in The Winds of Winter or Dream Spring between Aegon and Daenerys Targaryen. And one of the things... And if... and if George is going to intentionally parallel those two events, the two dances of the dragons, we're going to need to have different figures from the present time paralleling figures from the past. The one character who is going to be the Kristen Cole archetype in the second dance of the dragons is Sir Barristan Selmy, who I believe is going to turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen at some point in the Winds of Winter and serve Aegon Targaryen. I'm not like a huge fan of the idea only because I think it is really repetitive. I do like, I always go between it. I'm like 50, 50 split on it. I do like it Uh, with it's hard technically thinking about it because with the POVs converging and Daenerys and Tyrion and Barristan all coming together, I think his POV is going to get cut. If not him die off for it to be cut. And I also wonder because most of the book is obviously going to be, Aegon and his battle to get there that's going to take most of the book for him to get to Westeros and have it, I mean, get it under his control, basically, uh, and get the throne. And his POV, it might move, maybe, instead, and he would be another POV there because John Khan obviously will die from grayscale at some point. But to me, it's always just 50-50, and I emotionally can't see it. I personally think that Barrison might die by the middle of the book maybe get four POVs in. I just don't feel like him turning his cloak one last time is satisfying. But at the same time, I can also see, like, what else is he going to do after the battle? If anything, I actually feel completely opposite of Jeff, where <laughs> I this reread made me feel like something about Dario betraying Daenerys is going to happen. And I know that's totally vanilla Aeswaf right there, but, like, Something just about Dario and the Stormcrows and about that those lines in the Winds of Winter about Dario and about how, you know, oh, follow him and hopefully he just dies in the battle makes me think something's going to happen. I do think that Barristan, if he does go out in this book, it will be like a badass and possibly the Masked Men are going to be his downfall with the Brazen Beasts and Skahaz. There's just been so much focus on them and I feel like there needs to be some sort of more payoff with them, especially since... The shave pates have the city right now while he's out there in the battle of fire. So I think that there are good points on both sides and where I come is something kind of like a middle ground. I think that you both make really compelling points. Like I, yes, do you think Barrison's going to die? And it's very much telegraphed throughout his chapters. And I, but on the other hand, I do think he does have to make it to Westeros. Like there's been so much setup in the past few books of like, oh, where did Sir Barristan go? Letting him leave the Kingsguard was a huge mistake because Barristan and lends such an air 
of legitimacy to whomever he Hmm. serves. And that's such a big point of it. Like, that's been set up in, like, book one, book two, book three. Not book four. (laughs) But, um... Technically. Kinda, kinda. I mean, they, they, like, kinda touch on him and talk about it. But it's just been such a big point that I think to not have Barristan come back to Westeros would be bad structure and bad storytelling because then you're sort of setting the audience up for something that doesn't really happen and for him to have done it throughout so many books shows that it's something that he wanted to keep as opposed to like there are things in game that you can see oh George might have been going this way and then he changes his mind but for him to have kept it throughout those books tells me that this is something that he wants to this is a storyline he definitely wants to pursue now as for what Chloe was saying, like, there's just, George has said that he has to start cutting POVs, and of course, Barristan's POV, as we discussed in previous episodes, was only created, maybe not only, but it was very much created as a solution to the Miranese knot. So he isn't necessarily an essential POV when it comes to the end game of the story. And while I think he has a very compelling story in what he's been unpacking in terms of being a living legend and the dying out of an old generation, as well as different explorations of honor, he's not essential. And I think that in terms of structuring, it just... I think you lose something if he comes to Westeros validating Danny and then turns again to join Aegon's camp because he can only do it in my opinion once he's in Westeros once more for him to like know that this other camp necessarily exists. I mean Tyrion could potentially tell him but there's that and then there's all the other issues of like we don't need two POVs in Aegon's camp, technically it will be three because it would be Arianne, 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 John, Khan, and Barrison. We don't need all of those. And then Danny and Tyrion and Barrison, we'd already have those. So I would feel like Barrison would die perhaps close to the beginning of their landing in Westeros. And also just. I'm going to shoot <laughs> myself in the foot when I say this because there's definitely uh, examples against it, and I'll bring up that example. But. I don't think that the storyline of A Song of Ice and Fire should be reliant on extra textual information. Like, we shouldn't have to read the dance to be like, oh, this is what's going to happen and it's a little redundant. But also at the same time, you know, of course, some of that Blood Raven reveal does come from the Duncan Egg stories and not in dance. So. You know, I'm going to make my point and give my rebuttals to it, so. No, I agree, because I mean, the thing is, is it enriches the experience and you can pull further parallels from those things, but I don't think it's meant to be like some Easter egg hunt to fill the plot out. Sure, And to me, it's just really time, what we have left with time. There's so much in this book because this has to set up the last book. The supposedly last book. This has to set what should be the last book up 
uh, and you have to close a bunch of plot threads to get to this ramp up to where you everything can go off. All of these, all of these Chekhov's guns and different plots can finally go off. Things that he's been building up to. I mean, the Battle of Fire. You read the the summary of the second chapter for Barristan, and when we talk about it next week, like you'll feel like such a resolution to things that were ramping up in Marine before, and all of these tensions. And that finally, like, you know, he looks up and the Ironborn are coming and they're not fucked out of their minds after all. <laughs> like, because it was looking pretty grim, you know, it was just looking like there was sizzling flesh on every corner and just like gross. And the dragons ran off and trebuchets were going off and it was just not looking good for them. And then somehow the Ironborn are the saviors for once there. But uh, it does have that very Blackwater feel. So I guess we'll find out. I mean, either way, I don't know. I don't know, man. I really don't know. It's something that I just really go back. What do you and mean forth either on. way? Like, there's there's only one way. <laughs> I, don't. I mean, will we? No I don't know. Knows. Um, yeah. When's 2019? I think it's interesting when you talk about the dance and Duncan and the kind of the the other novel novellas as secondary material, and I very much agree with that. At the same time, I think that George at some level felt the need to expand on the history of a song of ice and fire and the history of Westeros in things like the world of ice and fire, the princess and the queen, the rogue prince and fire and blood volume one, because he felt that he didn't have the necessary foundation to push the story forward in the winds of winter at the same juncture though. And this is a, this is an interesting point. This is, this is an important point. Take the Duncan Egg novellas. The, Dun- the Duncan Egg novellas give us essentially the story of the Blackfires, right? We get in-depth on the Redgrass Field, on Damon Blackfire and his brother Bittersteel, and on how the first Blackfire Rebellion was resolved in The Sworn Sword. At the same time, though, George embedded essentially the story of the Blackfire Rebellion's interior second chapter in A Dance with Dragons. So... You don't have to read the Duncan Egg novellas to understand something about the Blackfire Rebellions. It more serves the function of the dedicated fan base that George has established and having this extra history, which is like, oh, well, there is a historical basis for the Blackfires, which goes deeper than that single paragraph that Tyrion gives to Illyrio or in his inner monologue in Tyrion's second chapter. Blood Raven's the same way, where... He is mentioned from time to time in the main series, but you get a lot more of Blood Raven in the Mystery Night. So I think that the Dance of the Dragons and the amount of words that George put against the Dance of the Dragons in both The Princess and the Queen, The World, the, the World of Ice and Fire, and Fire and Blood Volume 1 is a lot. It's like 80,000 words, I think. So it's essentially a quarter of the size of, of A Feast for Crows. So... I think that it works for the more dedicated and more hardcore fans that are like, ah, well, we can draw significant parallels from the histories and from extra textual things that George has said. But you might not necessarily need that in the main books because the Dance of the Dragons has been referenced and talked about by the characters in the main books. So perhaps they can draw parallels there if they're smart enough to to read into the the books. I just think that like going back to, I don't know, what Chloe was saying earlier, that it it just would feel redundant to me because while history repeats itself, it doesn't do so entirely, right? There's a twist. Like, Barristan's storyline 
as we've talked about, is very much like Ned's, but it's not exactly like mm-hmm. Ned's. Like, Barristan sure. very well may survive this whole Miranese plot. And with this upcoming dance, I think it's going to be bloody as the first dance was. But while, sure, Rhaenyra's line won in the long run, but in the immediate aftermath of the dance, right? Aegon, the second one. And I I very much think that it's going to be bloody, it's going to be ugly, but I think Danny's going to win over Fagon or Aegon. So I, I just think it doesn't have to be exactly one-to-one parallels. And something I think that would be really interesting for me, something that would be more completive of his arc than having him turn cloak again would be him becoming a Kingslayer and being responsible for killing his Dar, for example, is something that I feel like is a possibility in his plot. Huh. And that being a means that kind of brings us to his end at some point. But I could see him actually, you know, breaking his honor and seeing a king that wasn't really being a good king or whatever and actually killing him instead. I would be really interested if something like that goes down. I think that would just be really breaking and deconstructing that whole entire character down and just how by how does the wheat stock judge the lion, you know? But while I'm arguing against myself, I just had an idea. While I'm making points against myself. <laughs> Danny learning that Barrison has made a pact with the windblown and gone against her wishes and has been like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna fucking take Pentos. What at? Uh that that could be impetus for letting him go. I don't know. Yeah, I, that's one of the, the that's one of the arguments that I have that Barristan will survive to meet up with Daenerys again is that is a Chekhov's gun where Danny tells Barristan specifically, No, fuck the windblown. We're not going I'm not going to betray Illyria Mopatis, he's been my friend for the entirety of this book. And then Barristan immediately says, okay, we're going to use the windblown. We'll pay the, we'll pay their price. We'll give them Pentos if they help us in the battle of fire. Yeah. That reads like something that is going to have like the Danny and Barristan have to interact again in order to resolve that at some level. I could see that being a way that Danny says, you're done, man. Like you're out of my service. Like get the fuck out of here at the same juncture though. I feel that for Barristan as a character, he has to make a conscious decision to leave Daenerys. And I think that's important for Barristan because he's constantly searching for the one true king throughout his arc. He thinks it's Rhaegar. Then he thinks it's he has to serve Robert. Then he thinks it's Viserys. Then he eventually transfers it. And Robert, then Joffrey, then Viserys, then Daenerys, and on, onwards and so forth. I think there's something to be said about Barristan being the one to have to decide to leave Danny's side. I think that's going to be something that will bring Barristan to the brink, essentially. And I think there's a you make a great point of Barristan becoming a Kingslayer because there is a kind of two ships passing in the night sort of thing of Jamie and Barristan going in different directions in their arcs of Jamie kind of realizing that maybe he didn't make the best choices in his youth. And kind of having a more humanizing arc, not a redemption arc, because Jamie is not on a redemption course necessarily. Meanwhile, humanization. Go read DeKelfa's essay. 
I'm still clapping. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, but you know, Jamie is is kind of realizing some things about his service and about what it means to be a Kingsguard and how it's not all it's made made up to be. Whereas Barristan is kind of on the same path that Jamie is kind of descending, though, as opposed to ascending. And where you see that great thing about being the Kingsguard, I love this line where Barristan thinks in, I don't remember which chapter it is, but is the worst Kingsguard were those who played the Game of Thrones, which to me seems very much like the Kristen Cole type figure. Perhaps Barristan will be the Kristen Cole reborn figure. You don't need, of course, you don't need those secondary books in order to understand where Barrison's going and understand the headspace that Barrison is in. But, you know, there's all sorts of arguments to be made about Barrison and his future and whether he is going to be the turn cloak or not. I like to think he is. Other people disagree, and that's fine. You can disagree and be wrong. That's totally fine. Or you can disagree and be wrong, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so I do I did want to propose one middle ground. One middle ground. You ready? A more middle ground than my middle ground. I was very middle ground. So we talked about earlier in the podcast about how people might be trying to make an attempt on Barristan's life. Is it possible that say Barristan gets knocked unconscious or is wounded or something and can't walk and so he drops off as a point of view character going forward? He survives the Battle of Fire, he turns cloak, but as he was put in place in Marine, not as totally, but as a, essentially a stopgap measure to ensure that Martin could publish the book in time for the end of season one of Game of Thrones, is it possible that Barrison will drop as a point of view character, but not drop dead? I just feel like if we don't get his internal on it, then why would it matter? That's just my opinion. Like, if it's going to matter, and if it does happen, like I said, it is a possibility. I'm not writing it off. I just can't get behind it. But if it is something that happens, we would have to see Barrison's point of view for it to even matter, I feel like. It, it just has to matter. Yeah, I can't. I just can't. I struggle to imagine it based on all of the POVs that we've had now and the pattern that they've followed. We haven't necessarily fallen off with a POV like that yet. Not to say that it couldn't happen, but it doesn't seem like the modus operandi of these books. Or not modus operandi. At least not his role. It's just such a break from how the POVs have been structured so far. I think that's totally fair. I I just wanted to propose it as a... Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking it more in terms of like Quentin's chapters in A Dance with Dragons where you get the Merchant's Band, which is, I think, chapter nine in A Dance with Dragons, and then the Windblown, which is like chapter 26 or 27. Yeah, yeah. That I could I could see if they picked back up at the end of the book and suddenly it was him. And it was kind of like how Ned's chapters are in A Game of Thrones where sometimes they pick up in the middle of something mm-hmm. and he recounts what happens. Uh relives the memory of what he's been doing for the past like week or two so maybe if it's something like that that's the only way i could see it happening and if he picks back up in the camp with Aegon and everyone or on the way there or something but i i like i said i think it would have to be one or the other you know he's either gonna die 
Or he's going to live. That's that's my hot take. That's my spicy take on it. Yeah. I mean, what I got from this is that Jeff thinks that Quentin was just very severely injured and wasn't actually dead, but that he's still alive yep. and not a POV anymore. That's what I took away from what he just said. Damn, we're doing that two podcasts in a row. Yeah, that's brave. Yeah. It's brave. It, it's brave and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is what Jeff believes. So. All right. No. Is this our podcast? Can we be done? Yeah. I mean, Quentin is the harpy, so. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. This has been a blast. Can you please tell everyone where they can find you? Sure. And, and first of all, thank you guys. Thank you gals so much for having me on. It's an cool. absolute pleasure to be chatting with you with you all and enjoying some of these last moments that you have with Barristan, RIP, at least in terms of what you guys are in the next book in the next book when he dies in the dream of spring at, he's at egg on side at the second field of fire and <laughs> it, but in, no in the game of thrones in game of thrones where he dies in season five <sighs> <laughs> all right <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah that, no just thank thank you guys so much for having me it's it's a pleasure and i've really enjoyed your all's podcast and i will continue to recommend it to everyone that i meet on the street and to everyone I meet on the internet too. But you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit. My website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. WordPress.com. Well, yeah. I also want to say thank you for joining us, Jeff. Thank you for singing with us. Of course. Yeah. I don't know how much we'll keep in. We'll see. You know, yeah. he's a little flat, but just kidding, Jeff. We'll probably keep it just for you, pal. <laughs> Especially yeah, for that. you. Yeah, if you guys aren't listening to Not a Cast, you're wrong and mm-hmm. ugly uh, mm. and bad. Yes. And your theories are bad. That's what I've made out of this. But if you are listening to us, then you are beautiful and wonderful and not bad. And your theories are probably great. So probably. thanks for listening, you guys. Probably. You can find us on Twitter as at Girls Gone Canon. You can also find us via email, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Send us a message. Don't forget we're doing a giveaway starting next week, so we will give you more details about that next Friday. I have been Chloe. You can find me as at Lies and Arbor on the internet. And of course, don't forget to just stay on this journey with us. You can find us in many of the same places that you can find Nauticast. So you can find us on Podbean, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Acast, and on Stitcher. So subscribe to us. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for our Patreon stuff that's coming out soon. And I've been Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl, on the Maester Monthly podcast and on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Same as Jeff. Hmm. He's Glass Table Boy? Uh-huh. Glass Table Guy? No. 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 Oh, GGG. G-G-G. Uh, oh, yeah. GG. 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 No read. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you next week, you guys. Have a good one. <laughs>